This episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the leading destination for audiobooks and other digital formats. Audible has hundreds of titles, not only history, but great works of historical fiction. One of my favorite historical novels is Irving Stone's classic, The Agony and the Ecstasy. It is a biographical novel of the life of Michelangelo, and you can download it as part of your free trial to Audible. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash I take history to sign up today. That's audibletrial.com forward slash I take history. By getting a free trial, you would also be supporting this podcast. I Take History with My Coffee podcast, episode 21, Imperial Milan. This most excellent prince was a very prudent and astute man, but of solitary life. Timid in adverse fortune, most audacious in prosperity, he deceived many. In his needs, he promised much, but maintained little. Ambitious to spread his name throughout Italy, more than any other Italian prince, he was most fortunate in his enterprises. Gian Galeazzo, as per Bernardino Corio, The History of Milan, 1503. Welcome back to the I Take History of My Coffee podcast, and thank you for continuing our exploration of the early modern period. The history of northern and central Italy during the Quattrocento, that is, the 15th century, is bookmarked by the struggle between Milan and Florence that culminated in the crisis of 1402 at one end and the French invasion of Italy in 1494, precipitated by a dispute over the control over Milan at the other. In this episode, we will begin looking at the events leading up to the crisis of 1402. At the start of the 14th century, the Trecento, the political landscape of the Italian peninsula was poised to go in two different directions. It could be united under one or two centralized states, like the centralized monarchies of France and England, or it would remain a patchwork of independent city-states, much like those of ancient Greece. Though people would still identify as Ghibelline or Guelph, the old conflict between emperor and pope began to wear itself out. How those two former factions were identified also began to shift. Many residents of Italy, like the poet Dante, believed that a single universal ruler was required to bring stability and peace to the entire peninsula. This sentiment ran counter to the Italian desire for civic independence. The Trecento 
is seen as a transition period where the older medieval institutions gave way to more modern-looking sovereign states whose allegiances were no longer with the emperor or with the church. They would be defined more by their self-interest. The medieval commune was slowly morphing into larger territorial states under the rule of a signoria. The signoria was the governing authority usually vested into a single dynastic family. In some cities, this power arrangement was unofficial, as would be the case of the Medici in Florence in the 15th century. In other cases, a dynasty's right to rule was embedded into the city's constitution. This right would be recognized by both the emperor and the pope. This would be the situation in Milan. In southern Italy, the kingdom of Naples and Sicily, on the surface, resembled the feudal kingdoms north of the Alps. But underneath, it had layers of Norman, Muslim, and Byzantine influences due to its position on the Mediterranean. The Papal States, shaped by the papacy, the Papal Curia, and the local Roman aristocracy, lacked the urban character one would encounter further north. There were a few exceptions in the northern regions of the Papal domains, namely Perugia and Bologna. These acted like independent cities with their own signori. They were more like Florence and Milan than any place in southern Italy. Therefore, in northern Italy, primarily three cities would rise in power out of the ancient commune, Milan, Florence, and Venice. Milan would fall under the control of a single ruler, one considered a despot and a tyrant. Florence and Venice would emerge to regard themselves as republics. The politics of Italy from 1350 through the 15th century would be a contest between two opposite political philosophies. On the one hand, there was the absolutism of Milan. On the other, the republican ideals of Florence. Already in the 13th century in Lombardy, the medieval commune was steadily giving way to a single person rule. The pattern was the same. An office traditionally elected by the people was usurped by a powerful family. And though it might, in theory, be open to election, the office became, in reality, hereditary. In Milan, like in most Italian cities, there were local factions vying for power underneath the veneer of the Ghibelline Guelph associations. Here it was the Delatore and the Visconti. In the middle of the 13th century, the Delatore had been the dominant family in the region. The Delatores regarded themselves as a populist party and aligned with the papal supporting Guelphs. But it would be the papacy that would be the Delatores' undoing. In 1262, Pope Urban IV appointed Ottone Visconti as Archbishop of Milan. 
The Visconti, an old noble family, were die-hard Ghibellines and supporters of imperial authority. Using the power and prestige of the archbishopric, the Visconti family obtained important positions within this city. The power grab ended with a Visconti victory at the Battle of Desio in 1277. It would be Ottonate Visconti's nephew, Matteo, who would hasten the end of the medieval institutions of the city. He consolidated power through his appointments as Captain of the People, Imperial Vicar, and Lord of Milan. Successive family members would keep up the pretense of formally renewing these appointments. Transmission of power from generation to generation was a form of divide and rule. The head of the family ruled as a signor and was supported by his uncles and brothers as local rulers over different sections of the state. Through the early decades of the 1300s, Visconti power expanded throughout Lombardy. With a single lordship came stability and growth in commerce. This set an example for Milan's immediate neighbors, and they did not complain much as they gladly allowed themselves to be absorbed into the Visconti's orbit. Territory under Visconti control grew until it began butting up against stronger states. In particular, the cities in the east, including Padua, Verona, Mantua, and Ferrara, all with despots of their own. They soon threatened Genoa and Bologna. The height of Milan's power and the extent of its influence beyond the Lombard plain reached its peak under the lordship of Gian Galeazzo Visconti. Gian Galeazzo's father was Galeazzo Visconti, who had shared power with his brother Bernabo, as was the tradition of Visconti rule. Galeazzo was the Signor of Pavia, and Bernabo retained the Signor of Milan itself. Both brothers had pursued a policy of marrying off their children into prominent European dynasties. Galeazzo, in particular, married Gian Galeazzo to Isabella of Valois, daughter of King John II of France, and one of his daughters, Violate, was married to Lionel, Duke of Clarence, third son of King Edward III of England. In 1385, under the pretense of undertaking a pilgrimage, Gian Galeazzo arranged to meet with his uncle outside of Milan. Not suspecting anything, Bernamo arrived unprotected and was seized by Gian Galeazzo's armed escort. Bernabo was imprisoned where he died under suspicious circumstances, most likely poisoned under Gian Galeazzo's orders. The citizens of Barnabo's domains gladly submitted to their new ruler, as there was no love for Barnabo, who had a reputation for brutality and cruelty. Gian Galeazzo was a shrewd, unscrupulous politician and a careful planner. With lofty ambitions about uniting Italy under Milanese rule. Many contemporary observers saw him as a new Caesar, 
This was a positive thing in their eyes. In 1386, a year after overthrowing his uncle, he pursued a policy of divide and conquer against Verona and Padua. He allied himself with the Carrera family of Padua in their fight to defeat the Scalergeri in Verona. Once the Scalergeri were defeated, Gian Galeazzo turned on his Paduan allies. By 1388, he had united nearly the entire North Italian plain between the Alps and the Apennines. He was assisted in this by the neutrality of the Venetian Republic, who, as a neighbor of Padua, could have intervened. Instead, Venice concluded an agreement with Gian Galeazzo, which resulted in Venice gaining pieces of former Paduan territory. In the aftermath of this, Siena soon contacted the Visconti to safeguard this security and counter Florence's growing influence in Tuscany. They agreed to allow Milanese troops into the city in 1389. Flush with the successes achieved in Lombardy, Gian Galeazzo set his sights on removing Florence to establish sovereignty over northern Italy. His immediate objective was Bologna, the critical city protecting the passage across the Apennines. But to take Bologna, Gian Galeazzo needed to neutralize Florence somehow. He needed more time to prepare for open conflict with the Florentine Republic. Therefore, when the respected Pisan statesman Pietro Gambacorda began efforts to broker a peace agreement among the northern city-states, the Lord of Milan made it seem he was a willing participant in these negotiations. And these negotiations took place during a series of conferences that betrayed the tensions that were building in the region. None of the parties believed anything would come of this. The last conference was held in Pavia, the city of Gian Galeazzo's court. Here, some attempt was made to create a line of demarcation beyond which neither Milan nor Florence would cross. The conference at Pavia dragged on into May 1389 and concluded with a semblance of a treaty. It took the weight of Gambacorda's reputation to get all parties to approve. But no sooner had things been agreed upon than they began to unravel once more. Siena and Perugia refused to ratify the treaty. The government in Florence believed their ambassadors had failed and showed weakness in opposing Gian Galeazzo's more adept representatives. Rumors were spread concerning Florentine attempts to assassinate Gian Galeazzo. Conversely, Florence exposed a plot to bribe leaders within the city. Florence also had dealings with two of Milan's enemies, Francesco Carrera, the head of the deposed Paduan family, and John Hawkward, the English mercenary and son-in-law of Gian Galeazzo's uncle Bernabo. Gian Galeazzo then took offense to accusations made by Giovanni Ricci in front of the Florentine Signoria. 
Ricci called Gian Galeazzo a tyrant, seeking to destroy Italian liberty and the sole person responsible for the troubles in both Tuscany and Lombardy. Gian Galeazzo protested his character being impugned in such a public debate and went so far as to name Ricci as behind the plot to assassinate him. The Signoria of Florence ignored both the protest and the accusation. Meanwhile, a papal envoy, the Cardinal of Bologna, visited first Florence and then Pisa to meet with the Milanese ambassadors. After meeting with both, he concluded that war was inedible. Soon after, Venice sent her envoys to gauge the situation. They came to the same conclusion. In April 1390, Gian Galeazzo sent a declaration of war to the Signoria of Florence. The letter was carefully crafted to separate Florence's citizens from her government. He portrays himself as a man of peace. Bernardo Bruni provides us with the wording of this letter. While all our attempts have been vain and the counsels of the reprobate have prevailed, not your magnificent community. We can never think such a thing about it. But a few arch Guelphs who tyrannize that flourishing city under a semblance of liberty, either in rage or in fear for their ill-founded and shaking regime, have preferred to choose war over peace. These men, first secretly as far as they could, but in the end openly, have violated the treaty binding us all together, a treaty that had been consummated after long negotiations and with the correct formal solemnities. It is these men, this tyrannous regime of arch that we, contrary to our disposition and entire purpose, find it necessary antecedently to challenge to battle, effective from the day of presentation of this defiance, in order to avenge the innumerable offenses done to our friends and sons in violation of the agreed-upon terms of the League. The Florentines, for their part, responded by rejecting each of Gian Galeazzo's claims. It was the Lord of Milan, they argued, who had planned for war for his entire life. At the outbreak of war, Gian Galeazzo directed the bulk of his forces against Bologna. Well aware of Bologna's strategic importance, Florence deployed troops in the city's defense under the mercenary John Hawkwood. Florence herself, though, was surrounded by allies of the Visconti, but this wide net also presented Gian Galeazzo with a problem. These allies had supported him for various reasons, but they all required troops or money to keep them in his sphere of influence. Troops were scattered as far as Siena, Perugia, and Romana. All these men could have been used to take Bologna. It seemed like the war would settle into a series of local triumphs and defeats for both sides. 
then, in the summer of 1390, something happened that neither Gian Galeazzo nor the Florentines expected to happen. Francesco Carrara retook the city of Padua and did so with a small number of troops. In the guise of neutrality, Venice, fully aware of what was happening, allowed Carrara to pass through Venetian territory. And then there were the fickle citizens of Padua, who had recently hailed Gian Galeazzo as the bringer of peace and prosperity, but now welcomed back Carrara. The Paduans felt they suffered heavily under Gian Galeazzo's new taxes to pay for his expansionist imperial ambitions. Gian Galeazzo could not stop Carrera's capture of Padua, since the only troops available to him were tied up sieging Bologna. This was the first strategic failure of a man who had enjoyed a string of success up to that time. Gian Galeazzo's war against Florence would drag on for 12 years, with brief periods of uneasy peace. The war would culminate in the so-called Crisis of 1402. This episode covered the Milanese side leading up to the war. In the next episode, we will see the conflict from the view of Florence and its resolution in the crisis that, in many respects, determined the political future of the Italian peninsula. As always, maps and other supporting resources for all episodes are listed in the episode description. In the meantime, for more historical content, please visit the I Take History With My Coffee blog at itakehistory.com and also consider liking the I Take History With My Coffee Facebook page. Feedback and comments are welcome at itakehistory at gmail.com or you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. You can also support this podcast by buying me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash itakehistory. If you know anyone else who would enjoy this podcast, please let them know. And thanks for listening. Thank you.